I think you just simply do what's right. If you know what is right, we were selling ivory at Sotheby's. We had been selling ivory for years, centuries. But ivory became, we became the, the fence for poachers that were killing elephants and chemically treating the ivory and using us to sell it uh, into the market. We found out about this, realized it, and I went to our board and to Alfred Taubman and said, we're going to stop selling ivory unless it's got a certificate that says it's 100 years old. Well, I got a lot of pushback. They all said, well, that's not legally required. We don't have to do that. You're kowtowing you're to environmentalists. I said, no, we're doing what's right. And you know what? They agreed with me, and we stopped it, and it did not become an issue, and it didn't cost us that much money. It was just the right thing to do. This is the Angles of Latitude podcast, session number 169 with former CEO of Sotheby's and director of Lehman Brothers, Michael Ainsley. This is squadron leader confirming hostiles inbound. Prepare for battle. What you're about to hear is the integration of life. Clarity is power. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. Liberty. We choose to go to the moon. It's happening. And all things geek. Yeah, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. Uh, you got a badass over here. Welcome to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, JC Preston. And with me for this session is co-host Andy Dix. If this is the first time you're listening in, of course, it's the show where we bring you life lessons or a message from successful entrepreneurs, experts, athletes, and artists so that you too can find and execute your own personal mission and live a lifestyle that's proud of. So what an interesting show that we have in store for you in this session. You know, one of the things that I actually learned in grad school is that when it comes to ethics in business, uh, they really don't exist. Uh, sure, there's unwritten rules that people could follow, but depending on the, the business that people are in, <laughs> obviously, uh, you'll see them act certain ways. And many times the most noticeable are those in high power roles, mainly because the media loves to feast on those stories. Well, many times the lessons that we can learn from the big names can be applied to our own little businesses. In fact, me watching Narcos recently, season two in Mexico, uh, it's like, yeah, what do they do wrong and how can I apply that to what's going on with the scaling world? Definitely comes up in my mind from time to time. That being said, with today's chat with Michael, we actually find out a little bit about how he got into uh, his big time career and also how he managed to stay true to himself through periods where he could have gone a different, less noble route himself. So more specifically, we'll be discussing how those who have been hugely successful end up in an orange jumpsuit, what younger entrepreneurs can learn from recent big name crises and what a company should focus on if they find themselves having to rebuild their brand after a crisis. But before we get into that, I want to remind you guys about our friends over at Fizzle. And we've heard it time and time again that what's taught in college could be and often is different than the real world. Learning how to be an entrepreneur is definitely no different. And today's conversation is another example of that. So where do you go if you want to create a business online based on your talents and experience, but don't want to be constantly sold on 
the next class. As you guys know, Fizzle is my suggestion. Fizzle is your one-stop shop for entrepreneurs who want to do meaningful work online. And not only do they have a growing library of courses for the new entrepreneur, but their community is top-notch. They share real experiences on the podcast and in the forums all the time. And I feel that's what sets them apart from, from many other experts that are out there. Check it out today for free by visiting newinceptions.com slash fizzle. That's newinceptions.com slash F-I-Z-Z-L-E. And, if, and of course, if you want to learn more about why Fizzle was put together, feel free to check out our interview with founder Corbett Barr in session 150. All right, before we get started with this chat with Michael, remember to subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening in on. Also, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you would. Uh, they truly do affect the algorithm over there and help other people find the show. As always, email us your questions about scaling your mission-based businesses at heyguysatnewinceptions.com. Again, that's heyguysatnewinceptions.com. Show notes and show note extras of the show can be found at newinceptions.com slash 169. And as always, I'll be on at the end of the show to fill you in on anything we might have missed. Everyone, welcome back to the show. This is JC Preston alongside Andy Dix. Thank you for joining us for this special session. Andy, how are you doing? JC, I am so excited to talk to our guest today because you may not know this about me, but I am a business insider book junkie. So if you may not have mm. read this because this is a book from a long time ago, but it's like it's called The Barbarians at the Gate about RJR Nabisco's demise. That and a great book mm -hmm. called Three Blind Mice about how network TV imploded. And, you know, today we've got somebody in that same ilk, and I'm so excited to talk to him. So how about you? How are things in your world? Actually, uh, coming off the third bout of a flu, which, uh, you know, you, 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 you yourself had got to experience this past week. So um, we'll see how today goes. Yes, I blame the groundhog because Sunday was Groundhog Day. <laughs> And we were coming off 60-degree weather, and then all of a sudden, we're back in the 20s with snow. So never trust a ground-burrowing rodent. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, the fun of living in the Midwest. But, you know, um, as I've been actually getting better and, and being on the couch and being way too much, I've been kind of paying more attention to what's been, been going on in the news recently and lots of different things going on. Um, we had the aftermath actually this week, the aftermath of the whole Trump hearings. And then we had the, the, the first of uh, several Democratic caucuses that have been going on. And that's that's heating up. And uh, there's really nothing short to discuss. And as a bit of a news and history geek myself, you know, I'm actually really excited about today's chat as well, because, you know, for for us, I mean, just about anybody, 2008 was a huge change agent, and especially, believe it or not, I think so for the millennials. Um, as someone who can actually relate with millennials and Generation Xers, uh, 2008 was the division line of, of culture, I think. And I think before that point, and you had mentioned even after 2001, 9-11, I think a major focus of, of society went from accumulating wealth and you know, working, working, working and giving families everything they want to after 2008, we started hearing terms like, you know, minimalism, green living and living for the moment. Right. And another term that we started hearing a lot more about was sustainability. And that was on the forefront of everybody's mind. And 
And of course, let's let's not forget the uh, meteoric rise of the then candidate uh, Barack Obama. You know, so I mean, a lot of things happened in 2008. That's right. 2008 really was a seminal year for a lot of reasons. And there was that financial earthquake that just rocked the world in 2008. And today's guest was a firsthand witness. He was one of 10 people in the Lehman boardroom on September 14th, 2008, and watched the sequence of events in real time that led to the largest bankruptcy filing in U.S. history. He can also share an insider's perspective surrounding the price-fixing scandal between Sotheby's and Christie's auction houses that rocked the art world and ultimately ended with Sotheby's chairman in prison. Our guest went on to rise to CEO of Sotheby's for 10 years in the late 80s and early 90s and is the author of the captivating new book, A Nose for Trouble. His name is Michael Ainsley, and his book can be found at A Nose for Trouble. Welcome to the show, Michael. We're so thrilled to have you today. Thank you, Andy. I'm delighted to be here. So, Michael, um, you've had a, a heck of a career. And for people who haven't uh, been able to enjoy as many different things in, in their career, that you could, I guess you could liken it to the fact that it was, it's been a little forced gumpish and that you've been involved in so many different things. If you were to actually write your, your own screenplay, where would the, the opening scene be, do you think? Actually, uh, I think it would start in a little town in East Tennessee where I was born to some great parents, Kingsport, Tennessee, just south of the Appalachian uh, coal fields where my father was a national cash register salesman and took me up in the poorest towns in the world, frankly, uh, Clinch, Grundy, Gate City, all these little tiny coal towns. And I learned, mm. I learned about how to deal with people, how to... Uh, treat people with respect, uh, how to really uh, have empathy. Uh, I think the upbringing is where most things start. And my parents gave me unconditional love, and that gave me a, a big start in life. Um, so that's where I'd start the play. If you were to say that there was a catalyst, maybe an event or a series of events that would change the tide of your career, where, where do you think that that would have begun? and your, and your educational years? Well, I was an all-state basketball player in Tennessee. I scored 49 points one game in my junior year, and I had a lot of universities come in to see me, including Vanderbilt. But then in my senior year, I got very sick with an autoimmune disease called Addison's disease. I almost died, actually. Uh, and in, in a way, that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I tried freshman basketball at Vanderbilt, but really couldn't compete and gave it up. But then got into student government, and uh, and that was really a change point because I ran for, uh, for president of the Vanderbilt student government on a campaign of abolishing the student senate, which was frankly pretty irrelevant to student life, just a debating society. And not only did I get elected, I was able to do it. And that really gave me a huge degree of confidence going forward that I could really bring about effective change in, uh, in most any organization. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, I can definitely see where that is. Uh, several of my friends who, when I was going through, uh, undergrad and, and even grad school, they had gotten to the point where they themselves ran for, for, uh, uh, student positions. You know, one of them 
his name is Ryan Hatfield, he actually went on to do bigger and uh, better things after school as well. So yeah, I can, I could definitely see where, where that trajectory would have, would have gone from there. The other thing that happened after I got out of Vanderbilt, I was literally from small town, Tennessee. I had not traveled. I'd never been out of the South. I'd never been to New York city when I college and I won a traveling fellowship from the Corning glass foundation, which sent me off to travel and study independently interviewing people really in 30 countries. And that, that program really my eyes to the world. It was staggering how much I learned and how many different cultures I became comfortable with and, uh, meeting people all over the world. Um, we still give that fellowship at Vanderbilt. It's now called the Keegan Fellowship, and I'm going up next week for the final selection for two fellows. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's when I was going to school, a lot of people just say, go through school as quickly as you can so you can get to the job. And then there's some of my, again, some of my friends who spent some time ab- abroad like that, that they, believe it or not, have had so many more opportunities, really, because of their experiences. Yeah, that's you, you've been able to prove you know, a couple of extracurricular activities in college can, can definitely go a long way. Well, I'll tell you, when I got to Sotheby's, and Sotheby's is a worldwide company in 85 countries, uh, the relevance of that Corning Fellowship was, was massive. I, I was comfortable in Korea and in China and in France and all these different cultures, which were important in the art world. Uh, which I had either seen as a young student or learned about through the years, but it, uh, it really was very relevant to my own work experience. Hmm. Well, speaking of your work experience, you have, uh, you have been fortunate to be in the boardroom for some amazing uh, events that took place and the precursors to that. And, and no one goes to the Harvard Business School expecting to end up in federal prison. Um, but unfortunately, it seems like it's not all that infrequent for one-time captains of industry to end up in orange jumpsuits these days. And in your experience watching people sort of implode ethically, can you share the story of how that happens? What, what goes on inside of those boardrooms that ultimately ends up in disaster? Well, that's a complicated question. I would ultimately say that the, the biggest uh, motivator that gets people in big trouble is, is greed. They, they want more than, than they should get, and they, want to, they don't care how they get it. They basically don't have a moral compass. They don't know right from wrong, and they think they can get away with things. Their ego gets out of control. Uh, that's been my my observation of a few people that I've watched uh, self-destruct. And do you think these are actually, when they start out, sort of normal, everyday, asper, you know, aspiring executives mm-hmm. that just succumb to the pressures or the temptations of the opportunities? Or is there a character flaw, like a, a narcissistic gene or something that allows them to rise quickly to these roles? but then they can't sustain it because they, they are too susceptible to these temptations. What do you think about that? I think it starts when you're a child. I think you learn, you learn right from wrong. You learn your value structure. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the people that I watched self-destruct uh, 
I was told later that their father would come home for dinner and he'd say, I don't want to know how you won. All I want to know is who won today. That sets a set of uh, motivations in, in force and in action that uh, can lead to very destructive behavior. Do you think that the, the senior leadership surrounds themselves with other like-minded, in this case, greedy people? Do they, do they bring in carbon copies so, that enable these kinds of bad behaviors as well? Or are there other people that are potential whistleblowers just mm. sort of biting their tongue and, and looking the other way? What's been your experience? I, I would say I've seen uh, strong, strong figures like this uh, bring around, bring people around them who are weak, not who are, are, and so in a way you could say they are enablers, but I don't think they're uh, uh, necessarily people who also have, have the same weaknesses. They just happen to not be strong enough to stand up to the person. And, and so these people that are these, senior CEOs, et cetera, um, do they operate in sort of, I've never been in a boardroom like that. Do, do they operate in an environment where few people really do question their decisions? Are they given carte blanche or has that sort of, as the result of some of these things like uh, the Lehman Brothers scandal, et cetera, kind of changed the accountability that they have from their board of directors, et cetera? Well, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Uh, in the case of Al Taubman, who was the chairman of Sotheby's, who was uh, sent to jail for a year for price fixing, his uh, his uh, CEO was a woman named Dee Dee Brooks. Dee Dee was my successor as CEO of Sotheby's. She followed me. I actually promoted Dee Dee several times because she was so bright and so capable, so aggressive. But when she got power after I left as CEO, she began doing things that were really uh, not approved by her board. Back to your question, she began acting independently. And this came out in the trial of, of Taubman for price fixing, which, by the way, I think he got the bum rap. I don't think he drove the price fixing. I think it was Didi. And if you go back to the trial, this is a ways back, but there are 500 pages of incriminating evidence that were presented in the trial. Not one of them was from Taubman. All of them were exchanges between Didi and the CEO of Christie's, uh, Christopher Davidge. Mm. And one of the things that came out was that she actually approved a loan to a client for $105 million without getting anyone else's approval in Sotheby's. Well, when I was there, and I know it continued, we had a rule that any commitment over $5 million required board or executive committee approval. She actually just went out and did it on her own and obviously began to think she had that kind of authority and power, uh, that kind of power. I wouldn't say she had the authority. Um, and uh, it led to uh, uh, her getting, uh, uh, she pled guilty to a felony but she kept blaming Taubman for having forced her to do it. And he went to jail because of that. It, it's interesting that you mentioned, and I'm glad you did, that that this kind of, of decision-making that becomes illegal or unethical 
is not limited to just male executives, which a lot of people kind of think of, I think, when they first think of uh, executives that do bad things. They, they tend to think more and that, that females are a great way to keep that from happening because females inherently don't do that. But as you're pointing out, there's greed is an equal opportunity employer, isn't it? Great line. Yeah, I agree with you. And and so, as you as you think back at uh, not just the specific situation that these folks fell in, you also were in that chair. How were you able to balance the power versus what you said the authority, so that you didn't cross that line? Because you did the job and you didn't fall into the same trap. How did you avoid it? I think you just simply do what's right. If you know what is right, um, give you an example. We were selling ivory at Sotheby's. We had been selling ivory for years, centuries. But ivory became, we became the, the fence for poachers that were killing elephants and chemically treating the ivory and using us to sell it uh, into the market. We found out about this, realized it, and I went to, our board into Alfred Tubman and said, we're going to stop selling ivory unless it's got a certificate that says it's a hundred years old. Well, I got a lot of pushback. They all said, well, that's not legally required. We don't have to do that. You're, you're kowtowing to environmentalists. I said, no, we're doing what's right. And you know what? They agreed with me and we stopped it and it did not become an issue and it didn't cost us that much money. It was just the right thing to do. Is if you really stand up for something and have your arguments prepared and, and believe in the, in the values that are underlying it, you get support. And how does a how do you advise an executive to navigate that space between what is legal and what their legal advisors are telling them to do, and then what is right? And and how do you balance that versus the needs of your different stakeholders and the needs of your shareholders? That's that's a seems like a really fine line to sometimes navigate. Well, first of all, you've always got to do what's legal. Uh, secondly, you should do what's right, and you should communicate that to your clients, your customers, your employees. And if you do it, it will pay off. It will pay off in greater loyalty, greater commitment, and ultimately uh, financially. It won't necessarily be the near-term financial benefit. Give you another example. We, uh, we were financing works of art back at Sotheby's. We, when somebody bought at auction, we would provide 50% financing. Well, it sort of got out of control when Alan Bond bought the irises for $54 million. And we gave him a loan of $27 million. Nothing illegal about it. But suddenly it came out that we had done this and our other clients, Leonard Lauder and a lot of very major collectors, called me up and said, Michael, you guys are inflating the value of art by offering debt to buyers. You should stop that. I thought about it and I said, you know, you're probably right. We probably are inflating the value of art. So we put in a new policy. We said we will not finance art until it's been owned for a year. Well, again, I had to fight with Al Taubman and Dee Brooks and others to put this in. But all of a sudden, all of our clients started calling up and saying, good for you. You did the right thing. And we'll be more loyal to Sotheby's than we've ever been. So 
you know, you make tough decisions and then you go tell your clients and your customers uh, and hope they support you. Mike, Michael, you, you bring up a great point that, that I want to just, few people have ever had to make the kinds of decisions you've made because of the, the amount of money involved, you know, where, where you become comfortable when you're talking in the millions and the billions. And does that have some sort of translation, do you think, in the mind of executives? They get so fluent that those numbers lose their real value and they look at their own sort of income and earnings and think, well, if this painting is selling for $25 million, I, I should be making X number of million plus as well because I'm worth so much more. Is there a valuation that gets caught in their mind that, that leads to these temptations as well, possibly? Well, I don't know. I didn't see that at nighttime at Sotheby's. Uh, the numbers are crazy, and it's gone now up into the hundreds of millions that people pay for uh, great works of art. And frankly, it's disgusting. It's become all about the ego of the buyer, not about the work of art or the value of the work of art. It's become a way for a, a wealthy individual from any, any place in the world to become an instant celebrity. And I think that's unfortunate. I, I think the uh, art world has gone a little way over the top right now. If you would now kind of summarize your experience and think about these different executives that, that ended up really going rogue, what do you think are the early warning signs that leaders should watch for that indicate that shift to potential illegal activities has happened? Well, I think the, the uh, most obvious sign is people acting independently outside the rules of an organization. Every board and every, every company, every organization has rules. And when people start thinking they're bigger than those rules and don't have to follow them, uh, they need to be called, called accountable. And I must be honest, we didn't do that with Dee Dee Brooks. She gave some signs of that, but she was so capable in other ways that uh, it went on. And, and the ultimate uh, price fixing was, was the, uh, the tragedy at the end, which almost took Sotheby's out of business. The penalties, the loss of confidence from clients, the, uh, the disillusionment of employees, it was massive. And, and can that, can that results-oriented culture, especially in Lehman Brothers, for example, somewhat mask the process that, that may be yielding those results, right, and reward bad behavior? Yeah, I think it can. It, it definitely can. So this is, this is interesting, again, looking at it from a, a, a Xenial point of view, which is really where I'm at, you know, and you have all this upcoming entrepreneurial space, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the, you know, the Gary V's and, and all these um, big names that are out there just making a, a name for themselves online. Um, so you have, you know, online based businesses like they have, and then you have uh, techn technical businesses. And really, in, in, in this world, it's, it's similar, but it's different. But there's still that constant push uh, to publish or, or, or ship a, a new pro product or, or and, you know, put out a new book or whatever it is. And as pressure mounts to show results for, you know, a, a new CEO or, or entrepreneur, what advice 
would you have for them to avoid cutting corners themselves and taking unreasonable ethical and legal risks? Well, that's, that's really exactly why I wrote my book. Uh, as you uh, have probably noted in the book, I had some pretty bad uh, patches in my life. I ran a real estate company that virtually went bankrupt. Uh, I bounced back from that and went into a new job in Cincinnati. I ended up at the National Trust for Historic Preservation doing some wonderful work where I had probably the most fun of my working life changing the whole national policy about preservation. Uh, so what people need to know is that you can take bad lumps. You can take very bad personal development and you can learn from them and you can grow and you can get better. And that's why I wrote this. Uh, I, as you know, I chaired the Posse Foundation for the last 15 years or 15 years of its life. And We've got over 9,000 inner city young leaders. This book was really written for them mm. to, to see how a, what looks like a successful life and career is really a series of, uh, of bad, bad incidents, which I've somehow managed to make the best of mm. uh, health wise and financially and in terms of uh, challenges to my integrity, all those things. So that's uh, what I think. People have to realize this, whatever you're doing at the moment is not the last thing you're going to do. You're going to do a lot more and they need to learn from the mistakes that happen and the bad things that happen and, and uh, try and, and, and do better the next time. And it's interesting you bring that up because I think at least right now, a perfect example of that would be Tesla and Elon Musk. What was it a year or so ago? You know, he was putting out all this random stuff on Twitter and making them look like a fool and, and, and stocks were crashing, but, or at least tanking back to a point where they hadn't been for a year or so. And now I know we're, we're looking at record highs of like, I think it was like $600 or so a share com compared to back then it was like maybe, you know, 200 bucks a share. And it's interesting how, some would say that him being on the Joe Rogan podcast and, and smoking weed was actually what started this whole you know uptick in, in his popularity. But it is interesting um, to see you know that that playing out for for that company in particular. So I read an article about a year ago which compared the Tesla engine to a, a traditional um, uh, gas burning engine. And it showed the number of parts and the way it worked. And it was such a massive simplification and massive improvement over the old combustion car engine. I immediately became a huge fan of Tesla. I said, this guy is truly an innovator. This is revolutionary. This is going to work. And, you know, that's to me what you've got to look at is what is the product? Not what, not what the press is saying at the moment. So is that if you were to advise a specific uh, company that's going through its its issues, would that be your your word of advice? Is like okay, well, for you know, forget you. this might have been said, this might have been done, but we have a great product. Focus on the product. Focus on what you know the value is that you add to society. Absolutely, and and you know, I 
I had a lot of people uh, selling our stock at Sotheby's short when they thought we were we were not going to have a good sale or we'd had a a, a, a painting that didn't sell. Uh, that's what happened to Musk. He had uh, uh, short sellers absolutely leaping on uh, Tesla last year. Mm-hmm. I've 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 heard that many of them are now bankrupt because the stock has done so well. Oh yeah. So you've got to look past the, the moment. Uh, somebody said to me, just remember what happens to old newspapers. They're used to wrap up fish. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. You know, as you, as you think about an organization that goes through these landslide, massive public scandals where there's no place to hide and you're on that newspaper that's wrapping up the dead fish and your career's right there in it and the stock price tanks and everything else. How in the world does one of those companies ever rebuild its brand and reputation? What, what advice do you have for somebody in that situation? Well, number one, you've got to have a good brand. You've got to have a good product and you've got to just continue believing and continue you know, clarity communication is so important. A lot of companies get in trouble because they're not clear. I don't think I don't think Boeing is doing a good job. Uh, they have not handled this this crisis well at all. Uh, look back at Johnson and Johnson with Tylenol. They did a beautiful job of dealing with it. I think uh, I think Chipotle has done a good job with some of their food scandals or food scares. Sorry. Uh, so it's about clear communication, aggressive, and all of those companies had good customer relations and good, uh, a good brand, but they can be damaged if you don't handle the crisis well. And it is reasonable as potential shareholders or whatever of public publicly held companies to expect that the CEO has a good moral compass. Is is that a reasonable expectation in 2020? It's a reasonable expectation, but it's not always true. <laughs> very, very true. So as we're uh, blasting already, we're, here we are in February recording this, um, and you've the book has already come out last month. What are some of the things that you're, you're looking forward to in, in this year of vision 2020? You know, it's been amazing how many old friends have reconnected because they've heard the book, read the book, um, heard about it. It's just been a, a wonderful way to, to reach back in my life and history. Um, and I must say, I'm getting incredibly positive feedback. People say, I had no idea all the things you did. I had no idea all the things you, all the positions you took and the uh, kind of decisions you made. Uh, one of the more interesting is about the Vietnam experience. Um, when I was on that traveling fellowship, I mentioned the Corning World Travel Fellowship, I was running out of my money. My fellowship was only $5,000. And while well, it was a long time ago, I started to run out of it. So I went to Vietnam. This was, believe it or not, the height of the Vietnam War, 1966. And because of my medical problems, I was medically exempt. 4F, as it's called. But I wanted to find out. I was a young 22-year-old college graduate. I wanted to know, why are we in Vietnam? Is it the right war? Are we doing the right thing? So I went there, 
I met a guy on the first night in a bar who was the personnel director for the construction company that was building all the U.S. military bases. And he says to me, I need an economist. These people at the embassy are stupid. They don't understand that my the cost of living has tripled and I haven't been able to give a wage increase. I spoke up and I said, well, I'm an economist. I just graduated from Vanderbilt with an economics degree. A bit of a joke. But uh, he said, good, you want a job, $1,600 a month. I said, sure. Well, believe it or not, I became one of a two-person negotiating team representing 20, uh, no, 40,000 Vietnamese employees. And amazingly, they went on strike, probably because they heard I was representing them. <laughs> and nice. it settled the strike, but it was a very convoluted settlement. And they said to me, Ainsley, you go up to the, the northern half of South Vietnam and explain this to the construction bosses at all these remote uh, war zone sites. So I got a pilot and a little Beechcraft Baron, and I go up to Hamran and Da Nang, and I'm going into a very, very contested site called Play Coup which was a mountaintop, a little hilltop. And the pilot says, we're going to have to do a corkscrew landing because we'll get shot down otherwise. So I'm looking at him and I'm sweating. And he's really sweating. And all of a sudden I hear this, <laughs> one of the engines goes out. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he looks over at me and he says, hey, Mike, we're going to have to land on one engine. I said, can we do that? <laughs> he says, yeah, we land on one, but be glad it's not tomorrow morning and we're taking off because we can't take off on the one. <laughs> wow. I have going down in a pile in Vietnam, but uh, I must say I came back from that three months of working in Vietnam and, and seeing the war pretty close up, up firsthand thinking this was a big mistake. We really would not, we're not in a war that we should have been in. It really affected me in a big way. Hmm. Um, so one of my uh, more colorful uh, uh, nose for trouble experiences. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, and I, I, I'm actually going to be, because of a, of a challenge that Andy gave me in a recent interview here, um, I'm going to be developing my own book. And, you know, that gives me a reason to go back and interact with different guests of the show. and and. Uh, kind of put together some of those stories myself. So that's, that's a pretty inspiring um, send off from you there, Michael. Appreciate that. Um, it, are, do you have any like, uh, like speaking engagements or anything that we should be paying attention to or anything like that? Or, Well, I am going to be on uh, CNBC, I think on Crockbox in the next couple of weeks. They haven't told me when it'll run, but I'm being uh, interviewed on, uh, on February 25th. Okay. And I was, uh, by Bloomberg uh, last uh, about a week ago, and those they delay those, so it'll be running on Bloomberg. But again, I can't tell you exactly when because I don't have those dates. Okay, awesome. Well, um, Andy, you want to send us? Are we off? are we ready for rapid fire questions already? Yes, we are. That is crazy. This is this is the fastest hour in podcasting. I'll tell you. So what we do, Michael, is we're going to ask you just a couple of quick questions uh, that beg some quick answers. 
uh, and, and hopefully provide some terrific quick insights for our listener today. So if you're ready, let me fire away here with the first one. Uh, can you name me three influencers or teachers that have launched you to where you are today? Uh, Alec Hurd, who was the first chancellor I knew at Vanderbilt University. Ron Daniel, who was the managing partner of McKinsey and hired me out of business school. And Jay Leslie Rollins, who was the wonderful, wonderful dean at Harvard Business School that mentored me for much of my life. Hmm. Uh, yeah, see, there's another good connection right there. Um, what is one gift that you like giving others? Hope. That's why posse is so important. We give hope to literally thousands of young leaders that would not be going to the great universities they are now attending or have attended if it weren't for posse. Hmm. That's terrific. And of course, hope is just a, a passion point for me as well. So I can really appreciate that for you. Uh, what's at least one documentary that you recommend people check out? Fork over knife. This is the amazing, amazing study that was done in China of a plant-based diet over a meat-based diet. And uh, I switched about three or four years ago to a plant-based diet, and I've lost 25 pounds. I've had more energy. I've never felt better. And uh, I strongly recommend it. Our planet and our bodies need to be plant-based. Story by two of two American uh, scientists who took the study that was done back under Chow and Lai in China when people didn't have much to eat except plant-based food, and they, uh, they, they correlated it with cancers and other uh, medical crises and, and uh, problems, and uh, the difference is uh, so dramatic, it's, it's just you can't, you can't ignore it. So the next question, as uh, you've been someone that's traveled around quite a bit in your career, what is your favorite social custom? Social custom. Well, uh, I love hanging out with family. I have five kids and eight grandkids, and we get together as often as possible. They're spread all over the country, so it's not always possible. But uh, I have no more fun than cooking for my own family and uh, just hanging out and talking uh, everything from sports to politics to whatever. <laughs> Nothing wrong with hanging out with family, especially when you, when you don't have the opportunity. Um, and finally, how can someone be a difference maker in their community? Passion. You've got to have passion. You've got to find something you really, really care about and just exude that energy and that confidence and that belief. And you'll suddenly find yourself surrounded by a lot of people who begin to share your idea and your passion. And that's totally true. It's always fun to, to find those, those like-minded people that want to go the same place you are. Give example. We, we just had it in our little town of Palm Beach, which has gotten quite a reputation, but it's actually a real town with real working people as well as a lot of retired wealthy people. But we needed a new recreation center. And this I tell about in the book. A man named Mort Mandel from Cleveland came to me about five years ago and he said, Michael, I want to say thank you to Palm Beach. This has been a home for 55 years. We love this town. 
It's been good to me, our children and our grandkids. What can we do? Well, I went to the mayor and the town council, and they all said the same thing. We need a new recreation center for the whole town, a public recreation center. Well, we went to work. Mort said he would put up a third of the money, up to $5 million, if the town would put up $5 million, and we would go out and raise $5 million. Well, that meant I had to go knocking on doors and asking people to support something that, frankly, had not been on their radar screen. And we did it. We opened it two months ago. It's 17,000 feet. It costs about $14 million. It has a new gymnasium, a new fitness center, a new playground, a new soccer field. And it is already the heart and soul of our community. And it was, frankly, it's been one of the joys of my recent time is, is number one, getting to know Mort Mandel, who very sadly passed away two months before we opened it at age 98. Mm. But is the Mort and Barbara Mandel Recreation Center, and it'll be here for a lot of years to come. That's terrific. Yeah. Can, do you mind me asking, uh, what will be the number on this year's birthday for you? This will be number 77, a very good number. That's a great number, and, and it's so exciting to always hear that, you know, at 77, with so many accolades in your career and so many... Uh, troubling events that you've survived that you wrote about that that you are still writing new chapters every year that's exciting well thank you uh, i don't know what the r word means uh i just keep on having fun and doing things that excite me <laughs> it's a great story and it's still a work in progress and and we just wish you all the best that that's great well thank you again for uh, your your time michael uh, again people can find the book on your website and knowsfortrouble.com. It's really been a pleasure talking to you all. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. All the best to success. So there you have it. Lots of good stuff from Michael there. And it was certainly a treat to have someone with that much experience on the show. Again, to be sure to check out his book on the website and knowsfortrouble.com. If you want to learn more about his current role as the director of the Palm Beach Civic Association, I have a couple of short clips regarding that in the show note extras, uh, one where he shares his thoughts of the passing of Morton Mandel and his involvement in creating that recreation center that he was talking about, and then a short clip of him sharing the new garden at the Royal Poinciana Chapel. If you want to learn more about the book and what he discusses in it, I have two other recent interviews on this and one with Bloomberg Radio and the other with Carrie Lutz of the Financial Survival Network. So you can check those out in the show notes at newinceptions.com slash 169. So that's it for this session, folks. Remember, check out Fizzle if you want another source to find real conversations from other real entrepreneurs about business and life. Check it out for free at newinceptions.com slash Fizzle. So that's it for session 169. Thank you again for spending a little bit of time with us. As always, we appreciate you guys joining in. And until next session, dig in, have fun, and take care of whatever you're creating. And I'll see you back here next time. Thanks for listening to the Angles of Latitude podcast. Connect with us at home, at work, or on the go at facebook.com slash new inceptions, on Twitter at new inceptions, Instagram at new dot inceptions and on the web 
at newinceptions.com.